Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. I came across an article from actually, I think, about two years ago, Catholic World Report article, which was reporting on Jesuit High School in Tampa, Florida. And the article was taking a look at how Jesuit High there was creating a culture of conversion. And in fact, they had seen 22 students uh, convert in the past year through their RCIA program. And the campus, uh, director of campus ministry there, Jimmy Mitchell, was talking about the role that beauty played in creating a culture of conversion. And now he has actually published a book called Let Beauty Speak, The Art of Being Human in a Culture of Noise. And uh, it's good to have you with me, Jimmy. Thanks. Thank you so much, Al. It's great to be with you and your listeners today. Are things still well with you there at Jesuit High? It's great timing, actually, for the interview. I just wrapped up an all-day retreat for all of our RCIA candidates. We're rounding out the the school year, as you can imagine. This is my third year down here in Tampa at Jesuit High School in this role uh, as director of campus ministry. And uh, every year, you know, since that article is released, we've had another 15 to 20 students (laughs) come into the church. And today I had the privilege of uh, accompanying um, the students who are going to be either baptized or received into the church uh, in just two days' time. So we're, we're really wow. excited about that. That's tremendous. Uh, people, when they hear that, they want to know well, how. I mean, how are you—I love the phrase, by the way, culture of conversion. I think that's really smart. But tell me, what do you do to create a culture of conversion at a Catholic high school? I really think it all begins with visionary, prayerful— uh, and solid leadership. You know, we have an incredible president who's been at the school now for 15 years, mm-hmm. Father Richard Hermes. And, you know, he's built around him a team, you know, from, from the principal and, you know, the administration that runs the kind of internal affairs of the school every day, um, all the way to, you know, our social media feed. You can see Christ is clearly on the throne of our campus. And, you know, we're a big sports school and our academics are top-notch, but Mm -hmm. the young men who come in as freshmen uh, invariably have some profound encounter with the Lord, whether that's in a theology class, which happens every day, or uh, a pretty intense retreat that happens at least once a year, or one of our summer pilgrimages or mission trips or even an all-school mass in our gorgeous, uh, newly renovated chapel. I mean, this thing is, is five years old, but it looks like we picked it up out of Rome and plopped it down in Tampa and we start every day inside that chapel. So there's a lot of opportunities for these young men to encounter the love of God and be really transformed by it. I mean, it does. It sounds like you're really consistent in uh, having uh, that you're actually building uh, for a very clear purpose, and that is to enable uh, young men to encounter Christ in a variety of different ways. Uh, tell me about the role that beauty plays in all this. Well, you know, I already hinted at the chapel. I had a young man come in to my office there in campus ministry. Uh, it must have been about a year ago, right after we installed four brand-new statues of the evangelists that had all been commissioned in Florence. So we're talking Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the four highest points of the chapel above all of the side altars, by the way, that are dedicated to great Jesuit martyrs. I mean, it's an all-boys school, right? So we have the sure. most gruesome martyrdom scenes we could find, yeah. <laughs> and we put them above all of these side altars to inspire the young men in heroic virtue, to inspire them in their own lives of faith. So this 
this senior walks into my office and it looks like he's about to cry. And he says, Mr. Mitchell, ever since those statues were installed, uh, I've just had this desire for God and this desire for prayer. And I've never felt that before in my entire life. And, you know, it was a campus minister's dream. He basically walked in and said, can you teach me how to pray? Yeah. And it was oh. the images and the statues and, you know, just the, the beauty of the chapel that ultimately turned his heart towards the divine, towards the transcendent, and gave him what was clearly a, a, a prevenient grace uh, to, to want to know how to speak to God and to hear God's voice. So, you know, that's one example of many where beauty can even reach into the heart of, a, of an 18-year-old young man and, and bring him to the Lord. Where did the students come from? Uh, what kind of backgrounds do they have? That's an excellent question. That's part of what's so interesting is, you know, it's not that most of the families sending their sons to Jesuit are sending them there for the faith. You know, again, the sports are huge and the academics are top-notch. So, yeah. you know, we've got a, a huge variety. Only about, you know, we'll say 70 to 75% of our student body is Catholic. And then uh, of those, I would say a minority are, are practicing. I mean, if we're talking about just the basic precepts sure. of the Church, you know, uh, very few are living um, those precepts alongside their families. And so, you know, we've got these 15 to 20 um, every year who aren't Catholic, who decide to become Catholic. But then amongst the, the nominal Catholics, we'll say, there's a whole nother sort of wave of conversion each year. And it's because for you know many of them, they've not heard the fullness of the truth. They've right. never really made a good confession. They've uh, perhaps never been to a liturgy that really kind of set their heart, um, you know, in motion uh, towards the Lord and towards sort of the, the heavenly liturgy that, of course, every Mass is, is you know, bringing to earth. So I, I do think that the, the variety of backgrounds lends itself uh, to the culture of conversion um, on our campus, because, frankly, uh, so few come in with faith. I mean, true practiced, lived-out personal faith, mm -hmm. it does become a huge opportunity uh, for us to, in the work of evangelization. I mean, I think it's just wonderful and remarkable, and um, there are many people, and I'm sure you've met them over the years, who are involved in ministry, who would say to themselves that what you have to do is you have to basically accommodate the faith, and so stay away from you know any difficult areas. Uh, and somehow, if you water down the faith, that uh, people find it more able to tolerate it. Uh, what would you say to somebody who presented that to you? Yeah, that's a very tempting mindset, and I, I totally understand where people are coming from when they say that. But all I can say from personal experience, and particularly uh, in these last three years of, of working at Jesuit High School in Tampa is we take the opposite approach. You know, we, we go after all the hardest issues and the most uh, difficult uh, to, to grasp doctrines of our faith. You mm -hmm. know, these young men know what they're up against because the culture is really showing, uh, showing itself for, for what it really is. Right. So, you know, it seemed for a long time um, that the devil was a little bit uh, sneakier, a little bit subtler, um, but it seems like right now uh, he has just pulled all of his um, cards from his vest and just made it very clear uh, what he's all about. So evil's on full display is, is my point. And I think our students want to be able, um, after their four years at Jesuit, to, to stand up against that evil and to fight for the good, the true, and the beautiful. And so we don't hold back 
uh, in the classroom. We don't hold back on retreats. We don't even hold back, frankly, in our all-school masses. Uh, the, the kinds of homilies that they're used to hearing from our priests, uh, they're next level. And again, uh, totally uncompromising in terms of uh, the communication of, of, of truth and doctrine, but ultimately of God's love. And I think that's why it works, is because we're really um, providing a formation that integrates the head and the heart, mm-hmm. where we're helping the guys defend the faith. Of course, we want them to walk out of there with a solid foundation and apologetics and, you know, the, the full deposit of our, of our Catholic faith, for sure. But we also want them to walk out of there as true disciples who have deep prayer lives, who entrust themselves to the Lord in the sacraments, and who really see themselves primarily as sons of, of God the Father. And I think that's sort of the sweet spot of keeping the head and the heart really integrated. Yeah. Yeah. So you're, I mean, uh, uh, I'm sure you have a great appreciation for apologetics, but that's not your sole uh, uh, menu there. You've got a much broader uh, art of persuasion going on. That's right. And we want these young men, ultimately, to become great saints. You know, right. there's uh, a priest who used to be um, in charge of campus ministry at the school, and he comes from a Jesuit institution in England called Stonyhurst. And mm-hmm. it's traditionally, or historically, an all-boys school. I think it's been co-ed now for about 20 years. They've got 10, 15, something like that, uh, double-digit uh, number of alumni who are either martyrs, blesseds, or canonized saints, okay? Uh, now, that's pretty impressive. And yeah. I will say, you know, uh, that, that would be a, a dream, that one day we would have young men who are beatified or canonized or even God willing or, you know, by God's grace, uh, martyrs, right? We're, we're not really living in those kinds of times. Like, we'll say, you know, the Reformation in, in England 400 years ago, 500 years mm-hmm. ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's our goal. We want our young men to walk out of here, not just faithful Catholics, that would, of course, be the, the baseline hope for every one of our guys. But ultimately, we, we're empowering them to be saints and to transform the world, to transform their college campuses, their future families, if they're called to the priesthood, their future parishes. Uh, we really try to fuel them with, with big dreams of what their lives can be for the Lord's greater glory. Do, do you ever run into parents who say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, um, I, I, I didn't bank on this? I mean... <laughs> <laughs> the answer is yes. I love our parents so much, and they come along for this pretty wild ride. And uh, obviously, uh, there's, there's a lot of uh, expectations that have to be adjusted along the way. You know, for example... There's three to five young men every single school year who aren't able to go through with the RCA process simply because their parents won't give them permission. Um, there's, wow. there's another handful that I know quite personally who are, you know, at least um, personally and, and, you know, prayerfully discerning uh, vocations to the priesthood. Um, but they're not yet at a point of being able to really talk to their parents about that. Mm. Their parents want them to be doctors or lawyers sure. or entrepreneurs. So, um, we love the parents. We, I'm so grateful that the parents entrust their sons to us, you know, even just for those eight hours every day. Um, but what I've seen happen in many cases, it's the conversion of the student that then, you know, sort of have, has a ripple effect on the family and can nice. bring about even the conversion of his parents. So that's always the hope. It's not always what happens, but I, I do see it happening yeah. regularly. How did you guys deal with COVID? 
Well, it is Florida, so we had a lot of political coverage down here, you know what I mean? It was uh, not nearly as tragic here as it was elsewhere. You know, the, the first year, uh, we'll say 2020, 2021, uh, we wore masks like everybody else, sure. but we were open for the entirety of that school year. We, we did everything that we always do. And frankly, by 2021, 2022, everything was back to normal. We relaunched our European pilgrimage, everything was back to how it has always been. So now it kind of feels like COVID was a, a little uh, bump or, you know, uh, sort of a, a, a brief sort of hiatus on the radar screen um, of, our, of our campus life. Um, but it definitely took its toll. And, you know, many of our students dealt with issues coming out of lockdowns that, you know, thanks be to God, there's been a lot of healing and restoration from since. Yeah. Jimmy, hold it there. We've got to take a break. Come back and continue the conversation. My guest, Jimmy Mitchell. He's the author of Let Beauty Speak, The Art of Being Human in a Culture of Noise. I'm Al Cresta, and we'll be right back. And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Jimmy Mitchell. Director of Campus Ministry at Jesuit High in Tampa, Florida, and author of Let Beauty Speak, The Art of Being Human in a Culture of Noise. Jimmy, you point out that uh, at some point you got to be a frustrated uh, evangelist, and um, after several years you said you began praying and fasting, studied history and philosophy. What did you learn? How did that change you? That's a great question. I, I think because of my sort of love for education, you know, kind of from a young age, I was always the, the kid who was pretty eager to learn, you know, very happy to sit in the front row, probably a bit of a teacher's pet, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, I was always hungry for truth. And this really exploded when I got to college, and suddenly I was surrounded by atheists and evangelicals and very few like-minded Catholics. And it forced me to really sharpen my intellectual edge. You know, I had to learn apologetics. I had to know even just the fundamentals of our faith in a way that had never been necessary before. But what I found is as my own sort of intellectual conversion was unfolding, uh, I would be, uh, frankly, a a bit coarse with people and even uh, aggressive in my Mm. attempts to convince them that the Catholic faith was the fullness of the truth, which, which is obviously the case. Sure. Uh, you know, that our faith has the fullness of means of salvation, which is also the case. But very seldom did those uh, arguments convince any of my friends um, to, to become Catholic, to mm. even become Christian in some cases. So what I learned really the hard way uh, was that I needed to win people over through beauty, and, and the kind of beauty uh, that the Church has always been sort of uh, at the top of her game with. We're talking, you know, everything from Michelangelo uh, and, and Mozart all the way to just the beauty of holiness found in the saints. And I, I realized, you know, this is kind of where this book sort of uh, came out of, was I needed to be, first and foremost, living a beautiful, captivating, compelling Christian life yeah. that made people ask, me the questions, you know, yeah. where I wouldn't even have to, to step into sort of that, that awkward fray and, and offer, you know, some teaching of the Church out of the blue on a street corner uh, or next to somebody on an airplane, but, but rather to, to have the kind of look in my eyes, the kind of joy about me, the kind of heroic virtue that we know uh, is, you know, part and parcel 
of of being uh, a saint or aspiring towards towards holiness. And so that's my way of saying that it was really um, over and over and over again the, the the beauty of the church in her art and the beauty of holiness found in the saints that led to my own deepening of conversion and we'll say softening of heart. Yeah. But also it led to the conversion of so many people around me. And uh, while, wow. while truth is truth, um, and, and it sets us free, and it's ultimately a person named Jesus Christ, and He's the Savior of us all, uh, truth without beauty, uh, it, it can be very cold, and it can be very um, you know, I- ineffective, particularly in an age like ours, which is so fraught with relativism. Yeah. I think it was Benedict XVI that said something to this effect, that the final apologetic... Uh, is really the lives of the saints. That's that, right. Yeah, yeah. That's so, right. And that's what this book really is. Let Let Beauty Speak is a call to arms for all of us to to be the saints that you know our particular era is desperate for, is crying out for. So you know, it's simply divided into ten chapters, ten principles mm-hmm. that help cultivate this art of being human. That help each of us to live beautiful lives. You know, with, with Obviously, again, uh, all the truth of our faith undergirding how we live, but ultimately beauty being at the forefront, uh, which uh, is really um, the, the very you know transcendental, or as you put it, the very apologetic that our times, I think, so need. Yeah. You start out with the principle of wonder, and um, that's a great place to begin, because uh, so we are so uh, chronically... Uh, distracted uh, constantly by uh, our, our phones, uh, by all kinds of screens. Uh, how do we recapture uh, that sense of wonder that also leads to humility? It's amazing, because I asked that same question of some of our high school guys today on this retreat, and I said, you know, what does it mean to live with childlike faith? And one of one of them, he's a freshman, so he's 15 years old. He, he raises his hand. He says, well, it, it means to have wonder and, and <laughs> awe, you know, uh, which is that, that spirit of, of a child that is ready uh, for every moment to be an encounter with, uh, with goodness, with glory, with adventure. Um, the problem is right now, you know, uh, from our phones to um, just the, the, the political sort of climate that we're living in, to the, the, the media being what it is, it, everything is just so um, constant. And it's, and it's, as you put earlier, it's, it's a torrent of just, in, you know, ceaseless noise yeah. that we're having to navigate, that we're having to make sense of. And, you know, until we put our phones down and until we step out of our city life or even comfortable suburban lives and sort of get out into the beauty of creation or step into a you know, a, a museum where there's beautiful, captivating artwork, or, or, you know, we stand atop a mountain range, we look at a sunset, we hold a newborn child in our arms, you know, until we allow ourselves to stand in awe, uh, we'll just continue to go the way of the world. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's what's sad. If we don't have wonder, if we don't have awe, we'll, we won't even perceive the beauty around us. We won't even find God's glory in the ordinary. Uh, we'll probably become like most people that we, we know, which is cynical and a little uh, sad and mm-hmm. just kind of like waiting for the next weekend or next vacation to roll around. But God wants so much more for all of us. Yeah. You talk about freedom, too, and you tie it to joyful self-mastery and virtue. Uh, elaborate on that for me. Oh, 
is there anything that this world needs more right now than yeah. even just baseline virtue? I mean, we hear that word, and it's actually a pretty mysterious word to the modern ear. It's mm-hmm. not used very much anymore, but we all know that, you know, different from values, which can be subjective, you know, you have your values, I have mine, right. virtue is, is rooted in objective truth. And by extension, it's the only way to interior freedom, to that joyful self-mastery that you just referenced. And, you know, whether we're talking about freedom fighters, you know, of days gone by, or, you know, the heroic uh, martyrdoms of, you know, St. Maximilian Colby or, or Edmund Campion, for that matter. Um, there's something about people who are able to deny themselves, who are able to live uh, the, the cardinal virtues, the theological virtues. In, in today's world, it's just so rare that it can't help uh, but catch people's uh, attention. And I think that's really what that principle is about, is, is just living this beautiful, virtuous life. Um, that brings a, a little touch of, of Eden, a little touch of that you know, original harmony that we were created with to, to bring that back uh, into the world and to remind people, you know, this is what it means to be human. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you've got a uh, boys' school there. Uh, friendship play an important part in their disciple-making? Indeed. In fact, I, I tell the guys all the time, there, there's nothing more powerful on our campus than, than the apostolate of friendship, you know, uh, of the, we'll say, gosh, 40, 60, it's almost 60 guys who have become Catholic over the last three school years. Um, <laughs> I, I would say uh, two-thirds of them, at least 40 of them, have made the decision ultimately to become Catholic because they were inspired by a friend. Yeah. They were inspired by a big a big brother. Obviously, their teachers do a great job at inspiring them and those of us who work in campus ministry, but it's it's really their friends. And that's that culture of conversion, you know, um, that we were talking about earlier. It's built by friends who are linked arms, on mission together, and ultimately, you know, b- building something really quite beautiful. And that's yeah. what we see, of course, in the lives of so many saints, you know, Ignatius, Francis Xavier, Peter Faber, they were all friends. In fact, they were all roommates at the University of Paris 500 years ago and just mm-hmm. started dreaming about what the Society of Jesus would become. You know, I'm, I'm right now listening to the biography of St. Dominic Savio by St. John Bosco. It's one of the <laughs> few biographies of a saint by a saint. Yeah. It's like, okay, this makes sense. Saints have hung out together throughout all of human history. We should be those saints here and now. Very good. Uh, sports is big there. So I'm um, I'm interested to know uh, how you guys I'm sure ha- handle sports differently than a lot of schools. Tell me how you make this part of disciple making. That's a great question, and you know I will say first and foremost, uh, there's just a standard of excellence on the sports field. Um, whether we're talking football, lacrosse, basketball, swimming, you know, last school year alone we won three state championships. That was football wrestling and baseball in the state of Florida all in one school year. That, that's pretty unusual. Yeah. Um, but, you know, right alongside that, you know, it was our star quarterback who um, was sort of leading the charge in becoming Catholic and convincing several of his fellow football players to join our CIA. It was uh, more, more recently several of our kind of top baseball players who have had a real deepening of conversion that has inspired many of their friends on the baseball team. So, you know, there's always so much opportunity to form young men in virtue on the sports field. 
but again, I would say it's it's more the interpersonal dynamic and the friendships that they have with each other because of their sports that leads to you know the the deepening of conversion. And I can only hope you know because all of our jerseys and all of our helmets say A and D G front and center. Mm-hmm. I can only hope that that also has an impact on on the teams that. Uh, so often lose to us, but hopefully <laughs> can see that we're doing it, you know, not for our glory, but for the Lord. Then yeah. we got to stay humble. We have to, and that's something that all young men struggle with is, is humility. So that's got to be at the forefront as well. You, you focus also on one of the principles in the book deals with community, and you tell the story about a group, of, you know, a small group, uh, you were spelunking near the Carthusian Monastery outside of Vienna. <laughs> <laughs> tell us that story. Oh, my goodness. Uh, how much time do we have? We've got about two minutes. <laughs> That's perfect. So, you know, we have 110 guys on a European pilgrimage. This is years ago, and I'm just a chaperone helping lead this trip for a particular high school. And it's the last day. Seven of us decided we were looking for an adventure before we had to head to the airport and eventually come back home to, to the States. And so we decided, uh, let's go spelunking. And we had a map that was going to get us from a Carthusian monastery up a mountain into a cave. At one point, you know, we are literally having to wiggle our way through a crack to get into this beautiful cavern where uh, we saw all over the walls inscriptions, many of them uh, of, of a quite religious nature, scripture mm-hmm. verses, you know, phrases like AMDG. Yeah. We look all over the, the ground and there's just burnt out candles and prayer cards everywhere. And we realized Hang, hang on a second, this is a, a holy place, a sacred place. This is where probably many monks have spent long nights in prayerful vigil inside that cave. And uh, years later, I'm still friends with several of the guys uh, that w- went and, and were a part of that adventure together, uh, one of whom is a seminarian, two of whom are married and living beautiful Catholic lives with their, with their wives and, I think, kids. They're starting to have kids already. Uh, it's just amazing what an experience like that can do to help a young man, you know, really leave boyhood behind yeah. and step into manhood and to realize, hey, we stand on the shoulders of giants who have gone before us. If, if we're really serious about responding to this call to holiness, we're not alone. There's great even Carthusian monks that will never be canonized, that will meet in heaven, uh, who, you know, have, have gone before us as well. And it was just a, a powerful, powerful experience of, of community, of brotherhood, and again, of adventure. Uh, how do people stay in touch with the work you're doing? Yeah, the easiest thing is just to go to LetBeautySpeak.com. You can find easy links to buy the book on Amazon, Ignatius Press. Again, that's LetBeautySpeak.com. All right. Jimmy, uh, great making your acquaintance. I hope we talk again soon. Thank you so much, Al. It's been a privilege. Jimmy Mitchell, Let Beauty Speak, The Art of Being Human in a Culture of Noise. The book's available, of course, in the online bookstore. I'm Al Cresta, and I'll be right back.